Let's have the kids come forward. Good morning. 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 Okay. So here's the deal. So Paul's going to make a comment today that we're going to try to uh, unpack here in children's sermon. Okay. He's talking about meat being sacrificed to idols, which we'll get to later. But he says, uh, but he says, Knowledge puffs up, whereas love builds up. Okay, so let's think about this. What is something that we could puff up? What's another way to say something is puffed up? Something, maybe something we blow up? What are things we blow up? A balloon? Okay, what else? Bubbles. You guys know what these are, right? There's bubbles in here? You think so? What happens if I blow on it? Puffles. Puffles in the church. What? Bubbles aren't allowed in the church. Okay, I'm the pastor and I say they are. Bubbles. Now, the interesting thing about bubbles, we blow those up, right? Do they last? No. They don't last very long, do they? No. And balloons. We can blow balloons up, right? Huh, maybe. We'll see if we can blow. Jer said he would rescue me if I pass out trying to blow this balloon up. You can blow up a balloon too, right? But like you said, they don't last long, do they? No, they don't. <laughs> okay. So bubbles, balloons, things we blow up, things that are puffed up, don't actually last. Whereas Paul's going to say, you know what? You know what does last? You know what endures? Love. Because love builds up. It encourages people. Has any ever, anybody ever been loved? Anybody love you? Wow, you all should have your hands in your air, or I'm going to have to be talking to some people around you. You want me to talk to him? Uh, we need to have coffee. Yep. <laughs> Love builds up. When someone says something very kind to you, how does it make you feel? Happy. When someone gives you a hug or wants to spend time with you, how does that make you feel? It feels invested in, right? Those are the memories. You guys are little, but when you get old like me which is really old. You look back on those times that you had a connection where people invested in you and put, put some time into a relationship with you. Those are the things that matters, Paul's going to say. Now, here's the deal. This is the argument. There are going to be some people in Corinth that are going to say, hey, meat sacrificed to idols, we can eat that. And I'm going to unpack why we can eat that. But we can eat that. You know what? Those people who are weak, we don't have to worry about them. And Paul says, no. Knowledge, even though you have this knowledge, this puffed up, blown up knowledge, it's not as good as loving somebody else. 
Have you ever gotten into an argument with someone? Yeah. Have you ever won those arguments? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, so let me ask you this question. Winning that argument, how did that make the other person feel? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny, isn't it? Uh, it's not funny. Thank you, Maggie. It's not funny. Sometimes we win an argument, but you know what it comes at the cost of? It comes at the cost of a relationship. Paul's going to basically say, hey, it's better to lose the argument and save the relationship. Because love is much more important than knowledge. Again, knowledge just puffs up. It just blows things up. It's just air, and it goes away. Whereas love endures, and it builds up. One of the images in Scripture of love is kisses, right? Don't worry, I'm not giving you any kisses. Oh! But I think when Paul said that we should greet one another with a holy kiss, I think he had Hershey's in mind when he said that. Yes. So we're going to give, I'm going to give you guys, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you guys each a kiss. It's just a sign of love. And I'm going to give you a balloon. Okay, now, here's the deal. I need you guys to make me a promise. You're not going to blow the balloon up in church, at least while I'm doing my sermon. After my sermon, you can do whatever you want to. Okay, Nick's going to. Just hold your balloon, and then after church, you guys can play with those balloons, okay? So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give you guys a piece of candy, and then I'm going to send you guys back to your seat, okay? And we'll actually see what Paul says, not just what I say. <laughs> That's what they do. All right, let us pray. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of every heart, even the little tiny ones, that they would be acceptable in your sight. For you, Lord, alone are both our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, guys, grab a piece of chocolate, grab a kiss, grab a balloon, and grab a seat. Okay. Okay. All right. Great. All right, here we go. So we are in chapter 8 of Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. In the first six chapters of that letter, Paul addressed concerns that he had heard about through the grapevine, right? They had come through Chloe's family. Those issues included division and quarrels within the church. They were about sexual immorality in the church, and they were about lawsuits between believers in the church. And these issues actually got Paul pretty worked up. He was pretty upset about these. And so he responds to those throughout the first six chapters of our letter. Then last week in chapter 7, Paul made a shift, and he started addressing, addressing issues that he had heard about through a letter that the church had actually written to him. They were questions that those in the church in Corinth had and were wondering if Paul would be willing to answer them for him. The first issue, the issue we came to last week, was the issue of sex and marriage. And if you missed last week, let's just say everybody was uncomfortable. It wasn't a fun week. No, it was okay. It was a good week. It was good stuff. 
Paul's main point was that if you can remain single, if that is the gift that God has given you, then do it. Because your ability to bear witness, to serve our Lord, is very different than those who are married. But if you can't go without sex, then just get married. It's okay. You can still bear witness to God even in marriage. And it is much better to be married than to be trapped in sin. So again, that was last week. This week, we will begin the first of three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, in which Paul is going to address this issue of food sacrificed to idols. Hence the title, Where's the Beef? Now, I have to be honest, Nick came up with this title, and she was pretty proud of herself for coming up with this one, because it's a double entendre, which is just a fancy way of saying there's two meanings in this title, and we're going to have to come back to that and deal with that in a moment. <laughs> now, here's the problem with talking about meat, food sacrificed to idols, the issue we're going to be dealing with for the next couple of weeks. The problem is that here in Sharpsville, it is very unlikely that you would ever come across a temple or an idol, let alone food sacrificed some, to some god. It's just not a part of our culture. And so because of that, we actually miss a ton of the nuances, a ton of the complexity to this issue that was just a part of the first century. And so what I want to do is I'm going to take some time this morning. It's going to be a lot of information, but I want to unpack some of these nuances about first century worship in the temple because it's actually really important to understand what's happening underneath this issue, okay? So here's the first issue. The first issue is that there were just a ton of temples in Corinth, a ton of gods, in Corinth and throughout Rome, for that matter, there would have been temples to this whole host of gods and goddesses. Corinth was particularly famous for the temple of Aphrodite, right? We have a picture of her. And we've already talked about this temple because it had been built above Corinth, and it was probably best known for the number of prostitutes that it held. There were over a 1,000 when it was at its peak. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and beauty and pleasure. There's another temple to the god Apollo. Handsome fellow, huh? Look at that hair. Don't you wish you had hair like that? No? Are you guys listening? Are you guys with me? That was a joke. Come on, that was funny. No? Uh, thank you. <laughs> I can't show you the rest of the statue because all the statues <laughs> from all these temples are naked. Everybody's naked, so I had to actually cut this one apart. But Apollo is the god of archery and music and poetry. There was a temple to Asclepius. Does anyone know what Asclepius stood for? Do you know who, who, what the god was? It was what? It's you? You're Asclepius? <laughs> no, not Sleepius. No. <laughs> Not this. Asclepius. Here, let me. 
Oh, my goodness. This symbol. Does this symbol help out at all? Who is Asclepius the god of? Medicine. Asclepius is the god of medicine. And here's the intriguing thing. They used serpents for a lot of their healing rituals, which is why when you notice the statue there, his staff has a serpent wrapped around it, okay? It's, it continues to be a connection to modern medicine. And then there's a whole group of gods and goddesses whose names I really, I just can't, yeah, I can't pronounce, so we're just going to pretend that. That's the goddess of marriage, this is the god of fortune and prosperity. And Demeter is the goddess of harvest and fertility of the earth. Okay? So here's the picture I want you to have in your mind. Think about it like this. You could drive through Corinth if you had a car. And on every corner, there would be a temple to some god or goddess. The city was filled with gods and goddesses. There were so many that it was just a part of everyday life in Corinth. Okay? Which leads us to the second issue. And the second issue is this issue of syncretism. Now, syncretism is this process of combining different beliefs into one. It's this picking and choosing what you want, right? When we take a whole bunch of different religions and we take the best parts or the parts that influence us and we create something new that addresses or fits our needs. There were so many gods and goddesses throughout Rome, partially because the practice of Rome was to collect the cultures and religions of the, natures that, the nations that they conquered. And what the result was, was all of these temples, all of these cultures, all of these gods. And people could pick and choose what they wanted to ascribe to, what they wanted to believe in, what they wanted to turn to. What's really intriguing is that syncretism still occurs today. It shows up in the belief that all religions at the core are the same. That all paths lead to one God and that ultimately everybody will be saved or restored to a right relationship with God. Here's the problem with that belief. It's not what Paul believed and it's not what Jesus preached. It's not true. All those gods did not make them right or true. One of the really intriguing things about gods and goddesses in ancient time is this evolution of who they were. So, for example, Aphrodite, who is this Greek goddess, became melded with the Roman goddess of Venus. They became one and the same person. They were both derived from the Phoenician goddess Astarte, who was actually related to the Eastern Semitic goddess Ishtar whose cult was actually based on a Sumerian cult of Inanna. Like, gods and goddesses just continued back through history, and they evolved and grew and became these amalgamations as they evolved. Again, syncretism. It's just taking and accepting all these different gods and goddesses and creating what we want out of them. Neither Paul nor Christ is going to say that's actually how this works. It's not. It's not true. 
So again, the first issue is just the number of temples in Corinth. The second issue is this permissive culture around religion or this idea of syncretism. The third issue is that temples were not just a place of worship. Temples were a place to offer sacrifices. They housed prostitutes. You could go to the temple to hold a celebration or a party. And what's interesting about all of those, what's underneath all of those, is this idea of business. Business is actually what drove a lot of what happened in the temple. Even the temple in Jerusalem struggled with this idea. We all know the story of what happened to Jesus, what happened with Jesus as he entered the temple right before his crucifixion, right? Matthew tells us that he drove out all who were buying and selling there, there being the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It's one of these rare moments where Jesus seems to lose control. And what he's going to say to all those who were present is that my house... The temple, my house was meant to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. You've turned it into this place of business. And while that may work out there in the world, it does not work in here. That is not the point of my temple. But it's for that reason that temples became really important to cities like Corinth. They drove the economy of those cities often. There's another story in Acts, which is actually one of my favorite stories. Paul is in Ephesus, which would have been a city just like Corinth, right? And in Ephesus, there is a silversmith. His name is Demetrius, who made silver shrines to the goddess Artemis, okay? We're told that he brought in a lot of business to the city through what he did. Basically, he brought in all this money for the city, and Luke records for us in Acts, again, the conflict that's going to happen between Paul and Demetrius. And so this is what happens. Demetrius is going to gather all these idol makers, these artisans in Ephesus, and he's going to say to them, you know, my friends, what we receive, you know that that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And that the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Do you really think Demetrius cared at all about Artemis? No. He was caring about what was in his pocket, right? The real issue here is money. So are you tracking with me here? The significance, the importance of temples to a city like Corinth and to the economy in that city. They drove the economy. First issue is the number of temples. The second issue is this permissive culture around religion. <coughs> And then the third issue is the economy of the city is tied to the temple. And then finally, our fourth issue is this social aspect of the temple. People were connected to one another through the temple. It was a place to gather socially. So when a sacrifice was made, 
that animal was basically divided up into three parts. A part of it would have been burned on the altar as an offering to whichever God the sacrifice had been made to, whichever God you were trying to earn the favor of. A part of it was given to the priests, and they would use it as food or they would sell it in the market for money. And then a third part of it was reserved for the one who actually made the offering. Now, this final part, this individual part, was often used to hold a feast or a celebration because they couldn't take it all back and stick it in the deep freeze, right? They had nothing, no way of maintaining or keeping this. So what they would do was throw a giant party with their part of the sacrifice. If their home was big enough, they would do it back at their home. But if not, which was more often the case, they would just do it at the temple. What often happened right after a sacrifice was at the temple was this huge feast in honor of this individual. They have records, invitations of these being sent around. And then there is this archaeological evidence that most temples actually had dining facilities in them, places where people would gather to eat. One commentator made the comment that there's this analogy between ancient temples in this regards and modern restaurants. Because again, it's all about business. Business and money are what is driving temple life. Okay, a whole lot of information. My point is this, as we begin to talk about this issue of food sacrifice to idols, we need to keep just how complex temple life was in the back of our minds. At a certain level, the issue of food sacrifice to idols is really about the conflict between the church and culture. And in the first century Corinth, the predominant culture was actually tied to the temple. So as I said at the beginning, chapters 8, 9, and 10 are going to address this issue of food sacrifice to idols. We're only going to look at chapter 8 this morning. We're going to try something different as opposed to doing all three chapters and spending all day here. So this is going to be a longer conversation over the next few weeks. So if you're ready, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to begin reading with verse 1. Eight, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possessed knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Hold on to that one. We're going to come back to that one. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. Let's pause here. Here's the question that is being asked. Paul, can we eat meat that has been sacrificed in a temple to an idol or a god with just a little 
G. And what I mean by that is not the one true God, but these idols, these non-gods that are all over the city. Because in reality, these gods don't actually exist, do they, Paul? If there really isn't any Aphrodite or Apollo or Asclepius, if none of those gods or goddesses are real, then the meat being sold in the markets and the meat that is being offered at these parties that we want to continue to go to, well, it's just meat, isn't it? It doesn't actually have any connection to anything. So is there any problem with us eating this meat? Now, if you think about it, it's actually a great question. It makes complete sense. It is so logical. While culturally in Corinth, there may have been many gods and lords. There were a bunch of them. Christianity is going to proclaim, in fact, that there is only one true God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is only one true Lord through whom all things came and through whom we live. All those other gods and goddesses, they don't exist. They are just wood and stone. Paul is making this distinction between all the temples and their gods throughout Corinth and the one true God who is the creator and sustainer of all life. What he is speaking here to is the supremacy of Christ. And what he is saying is, you know what? Not all religions are the same. They don't all take you to the same place. Here's the situation. There are all these gods and that people worshipped and made sacrifices to on a regular basis. And then Paul shows up and he is talking about the one true God. And all those who lived in Corinth just saw this as the next new thing. The next new God, just another fad or fashion. In the long line of gods that they have worshipped. But what Paul is actually saying is there is only one. Everything you have put your energy into is false. Paul is speaking against the culture of syncretism that existed in Corinth, and that still exists today. There is only one God, and he has been revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. And while it's true, while there is only this one God, it's not that Christianity is actually better than any other religions. It's not a prideful or arrogant position that those who claim Christ should carry. In Paul's opinion, it's actually a very humble position. Because Paul began with, knowledge only puffs up. It's love that builds up. It really has everything to do with how we communicate what we believe. We're not any better than anybody else. We just know what's true versus what's a lie. That's the difference he is saying. And he's going to go on with this. Let's turn back to chapter 8 and begin with verse 7. But you know what? Not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. 
But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and we are no better if we do. So be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you actually sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat is going to cause my brother or sister to fall into sin, into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. That's, that's the point of it. Paul's going to say, you know what, you are right. There is only one God. But here's the problem. Not everybody sees it that way yet. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that they can't wrap their minds around this idea that there is only one God. Can you imagine growing up and then in an instant having to change everything you ever believed? Those who grew up in Corinth would have grown up believing that idols were real, all of them, all idols. And therefore, the food that was sacrificed to those idols came with all this baggage attached to it. But here comes Paul, and he is saying, put your faith in the one true God in Jesus Christ. The problem is, is that that doesn't change in an instant, right? You can't let go of all the old habits that you had, the old ways of thinking. Coming to realize that all these idols were only wood and stone would have taken some time. And so Paul's saying, why, for your sake, would you jeopardize their faith? Let's see if we can try to understand this a little bit differently. So after the summer that I had come to know Christ, right, I was 25 years old when I first found myself in a church. I'd come to know Christ, I'd gone back to Penn State, and Nick and I were just starting to build a relationship. That fall, she called me and said, hey, would you like to be my plus one for a wedding? A friend of mine is getting married. And so I said, sure, why not? And so she comes out and she picks me up and we're driving to West Virginia for this wedding. So here's the thing, right? I spent, at this point, six years in college talking with women. It was something I specialized in in college, if you get what I'm saying here. Um, and so I was looking forward to this trip because I got romance and I understood talking and I'm like, ha, this is going to be good. And so we're in the car, we're driving to West Virginia, and I turn to her and I say, you know, what's your... What's your idea of a perfect weekend away with someone special to you? <laughs> to which Nick doesn't respond right away. And instead, she just turns the question back on me. She's like, well, what, what would your idea be? And I was feeling pretty cocky at this time. Again, I felt like I had a grasp on what women like to talk about. And so I was like, oh, okay, I got this. So my idea would be maybe a cottage. It's coming into winter. Maybe we're in a cottage, and outside it's snowing and it's cold. We got a fire in the fireplace. There's a bearskin rug on the floor. 
At which point, Nick turns to me and says, and then what? Now, I was pretty quick back then. <laughs> and I knew the conversation was heading in a bad direction all of a sudden. Something had gone horribly wrong. Nick says, and then what? Because you see, my old way of happening, of being, my way before Christ was leading me down a trail that was about to get me in a whole lot of trouble with Nick. So in this moment, I think I pivoted. I think I parried, and I said, you know, well, our parents would obviously be with us, so maybe we'd pull out Pictionary or some game or something like that, and we would just have a fun evening. I mean, come on. That's what you do, obviously. <laughs> yeah. We got married. Um, it still worked out. But here's the deal. Nick had spent her entire life in Christ. I had been in Christ for only six months. Me changing how I thought about everything takes time. If you've never spent time with a new Christian, you don't understand that it's a process. That change is a long and involved activity. Things do not happen overnight. For me, I had to learn what it meant to live in Christ and what it meant to be in relationship with someone that I actually did care about. Paul's point is that even though there is only one God and one Lord, it is not the end of the discussion. It's not enough to beat someone else, to win that fight, to conquer them with our words. Knowledge without love is a huge problem. Paul makes a very important statement at the beginning of this argument, way back in verse 3. Remember I told you to hold on to this? He says, whoever loves God is known by God. Because what it is about is about relationship. Everything that we do in Christ is about relationship. You know, we can have all this knowledge about God. I spent four years fighting my way through seminary to learn about God. But knowledge never replaces love. And whoever loves God, whoever loves God, is actually known by God. You see, when we are in relationship with God, we take the focus off ourselves, what we know, the knowledge that we might possess, and we simply Spend time with our Lord. We allow ourselves to be known by the creator and the sustainer of all life. You know, as Christian Ed Committee, we put a lot of energy into Christian Ed here at the church. And I've been wrestling a little bit with it. And I think one of the things that we have failed to communicate here in the church is that all the programs we offer, the Bible studies, the Lenten study, the Sunday morning program, these are less about knowledge and what you know than they are about just spending time with God. Which is why when we invite you to come out to these, when we encourage you, it's not about what you know. 
Because it really is just an opportunity in the context of community to see Christ, to listen for his voice. So there was a few of us that went out to a concert on Friday night, the Pat Barrett concert. Um, it was a great concert, actually. It was a very small venue. He does some great music, and his lyrics, I was talking with Jackie about this, his lyrics are more complex. He's got some great images in his lyrics. He said this thing that just totally captivated me. He's standing there, and in between songs, he says, you know, he says, when I look at a flower, I just see a flower. But when Jesus looked at a flower, he saw God's provision. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's amazing. That's so cool. He has some really great insights into who Jesus was, and he, he sings about it in his songs. Well, one of the songs that really spoke to me on Friday night is this song, I Am Held. And in it, I want you, I'm going to play a little bit of it for us here. I want you to listen to the words of it, in particular, the refrain, the chorus, I don't know, whatever, the chorus. I don't know anything. The chorus, he repeats these words. He says, I am held by the one who won't let go. I am held by the lover of my soul. It's an amazing song to think about who it is that longs to be in relationship with us. So listen to this. Oh, no, not there. Again, I am held, I am held, I am held by the one who won't let go. I am held by the lover of my soul. It's those words, it's about being in a relationship with a God who holds on to us so tightly that we are safe and cared for. That enables us to go out into the world not having to win any argument, not having to be right, 
But being able to just say, you know what? The one true God loves you as well. And he longs to hold on to you. He won't let go. Because he is the lover of your soul. We get that. And Paul's argument over these next three chapters is going to be, you know what? If we get that, then we are the ones to sacrifice for the other for those who don't yet get that, for those who do not yet understand the knowledge that we have. Where's the beef is about, or what do we do with this meat sacrifice to idols? But where's the beef is actually about, why would we have any conflict with anyone? Why would we be willing to go toe-to-toe, get into a fight, especially with people who don't yet know Christ. Christ has you. He holds you. He is the lover of your soul. What more could you possibly need? Let us pray. Father, I pray that each person sitting here this morning, that all of us, that we would grasp what it means to just be held. To be held by someone who won't let us go, someone who loves even our souls. Lord, it is in that knowledge that we gather and we go that the world may understand that the one true God loves that deeply. This is why we offer our praise. This is why we gather. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand if you're able as we lift our hearts and worship to the one who holds us.